Well, this is a nice surprise to see you. It means that some of you who are still only considering the claims of the gospel of Jesus get another chance. Something happened in our church. There is a wellspring of passionate desire among people of all ages and all backgrounds who are saying in one way or another the same thing to me. They're saying, I, I want to fully experience Jesus Christ as Lord of my life. I want to know what it means to follow him. That's what I'm hearing from you. I'm hearing from you that in your minds, in your hearts, you're saying the day of excuses and rationalization has passed. I want to get on with this thing of following Jesus. The Lord used a a passage a few weeks ago to begin this stirring from Matthew chapter 16, and particularly in verse 24, where Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then in the next verse, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. And from that, the Lord has been stirring up in so many of your hearts this desire to say, Am I good? Am I, I mean, am I good with God? Am I, am I doing this right? I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross for me. I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe all these things, but am I following him? Is he my Lord? These are questions that are coming from you. That the Lord seems to be stirring up in in our hearts. And that's good because in Romans chapter 10 it says, The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So clearly it says it's more than just believing, but it's about confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. And in order to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, authentically, there would be a behavior that follows, yes? It's not just about saying, He's my Lord, but it's about confessing Him as your Lord. And Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He must deny, he must stop making the gospel message about him or her, He must die, take up his cross, invite the Lord to come and crucify your flesh, and follow. And then you'll be ready to follow. And so what I'm hearing from you is that you're ready for that. And the question that comes back is, how do I know when I'm doing this? How do I know when I have this right? And so I, I went to the Lord on your behalf and the Word of God and, 
And I came back with what I thought was going to be one message of seven actionable qualities of an authentic follower of Jesus. Sounds very preachery, just hearing it out of my own mouth. And I thought I was going to give it all to you in that one day, but we got stuck on the first one. And the Holy Spirit has just been faithful, has he not? To say, wait, stop. Stop making lists. Take these one at a time and let them come in and be embraced and, and, and acted on. And so, began with, you know, to be an authentic disciple of Jesus Christ means that you are a person of prayer. That you have taken the trouble, that you have done the work of establishing a disciplined life of prayer. It's not sort of, you know, here and there. It's not, well, I pray all the time. No, you kind of don't. Prayer is a thing. And prayer is connecting with God. And we have taught you over and over and over again ways to do that. And a person who is authentically following Jesus Christ is a person who is developing a life of prayer. Otherwise, they're not following him. Because you can't follow somebody you're not speaking with. Because prayer is conversational. It's not just, my name is Jimmy and I'll take all you gimme. It's about tuning in to the Father and His voice. To know what He's doing and know what He's doing in your life. And saying, what do you want to do today, Lord? And an authentic follower of Jesus Christ is also a person of the Word of God. A person who stops making excuses about why they're too busy to spend some time in the Word. We have Bibles. We're surrounded by Bibles. We can make forts out of Bibles. We have them on our eye whatever. What is the thing now? Eye poop or whatever. I don't know. Eye something. And you've got them there. You've got them there. The, The Word of God is floating in the air. You just need to connect to it. There's absolutely no excuse for a person to say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ who doesn't spend time in His Word. If we don't spend time in His Word, we're following a God of our own devising because we don't know who He really is. So today I want to bring you the third actionable quality of a disciple of Jesus Christ who's I believe actually walking the walk, and that is a person of worship. A person who worships God. And by worship, I mean intentionally reflecting the glory of God back to Him. That's what worship is. At its core, it's being a a reflective surface. At its core, it's God is shining on His people in glory, and worship is reflecting it back to Him. It's sending it back to Him. I've shown you in the Scripture how even the difficulties of our life are meant to be experiences of of polishing our reflective surfaces so that we can turn them toward God and, and be even greater vessels of His glory. That these things have come, the Bible says, though now for a little while, It says that you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. 1 Peter 1, 
These have come, it says, so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so God is working among us, even in our trials, even in our loss, to polish the surface so that we'll be better reflectors of his glory. That's what worship is at its core. Some of us are by nature more reflective. It's all I have to when I bow my head, I'm reflecting God's glory. Look at it. Look, look. Some of you have hair in the way. Worship is reflecting his glory. And an authentic follower of Jesus Christ, somebody who is actually following Jesus Christ, will worship him. You won't be able to help yourself. You won't be. When you follow Jesus, when you come into dynamic relationship with the actual Jesus and not a thought of Jesus, you will worship him. He's that fascinating. Turning your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter is toward the back of your Bibles if you're newer. It's right before 2 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to ask you to do something. I, I'm going to ask you to do something that we used to do when we were a little itty-bitty church and somehow we stopped doing it. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to begin in verse 4. The Apostle says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Lord, we pray your powerful blessing upon the reading of your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, contained right in this passage is an obvious revelation about worship and about us being a people of worship. In verse 9 it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people belonging to God. The Bible says that because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that's who you are. That's your identity. That if you are trusting in Christ, if you're serious about this whole thing about following Jesus as Lord, that's who you have become. And then it tells us why he, has, why he is making us into that. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That the central purpose of our salvation is not to go to heaven. What? Let me say it again and give me a what. The central purpose of our salvation is not that you will go to heaven. But it's so that you will declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You just get to go to heaven because that's where the party's going to be forever. The central purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about me, Chester. Ah! It's about God and His glory. And that when I come to Christ, when I surrender to Him as my Lord, when I believe on Him as my Savior, I become a part of a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to God. Why? So that I can have the biggest bass boat in heaven? No, so that I can declare the praises of him who called me out of darkness into his wonderful light. I'm figuring if that's how it's going to be there, we better get started here. That's why we're being saved, is to worship him. And I also want you to notice that the foundation of our worship comes from our identity. When you embrace the top part, you will naturally do the bottom part. Make sense? Say yes or I'll begin again. So we worship, we sing, we pray, we raise our hands, we dance, we express ourselves from our hearts. And there are many, many, many different ways to worship, yes? And I always want to be sure to say that I respect any and every person's manner of worship as long as they are certain from a biblical perspective that they actually are worshiping. So there are some of us who are sort of short-fused and ready to go. Oh, Jesus, right? And there are some who are by temperament more reserved. And what I'm saying is I respect every person's right to worship in a manner that is suitable for them as long as from a truly biblical perspective you are worshiping and not using it as an excuse not to worship. Well, I'm just not wired that way. You better get your wiring checked. What's the best way to worship? Well, my way, of course. The best way to worship is what is biblically supported and authentically your way. You have a way. I think your manner of worship is going to be conditioned by two things. Number one, your temperament. You have a temperament. Some of you are more outward-focused, outgoing, gregarious, and others of you are more contemplative and inward-focused. It's all right. It's okay. And you can worship fully from that space. And so your style of worship is going to be conditioned by your temperament, but it's also going to be conditioned by the moment you're in. Because when the Holy Spirit comes... You can do some pretty goofy things, can't you? And you can be drawn outside of even your temperament, right? 
How many of you have found yourself face down on this carpet and go, oh crap, how'd I get here? Now I got to get up, right? Because it was real. The moment was calling you into it. Yes? Follow the moment. I respect, absolutely respect your right to worship from your temperament as long as those of you who are more reserved or even stoically wired are not using it as an excuse not to worship at all. And uh, on the other end of the spectrum, those of you who are naturally exuberant worshipers, I exhort you in the name of Jesus never to judge someone who doesn't worship like you do. Because just because you're singing and dancing doesn't mean you're worshiping. Only you know that. Every now and then somebody will come to me and they say something like this. Pastor Tom, what you need to teach the church to do is, and then whatever is the rest of that, is who they are. Well, you, you know, you need to teach the church to fill in the blank, and it's whoever they are. And um, I just ask them exactly, who are you then again? that gives you the right to come into this place and judge everybody else who isn't like you. And then they send me a nasty email <laughs> and shake the dust from their sandals and go impose themselves on some poor other unsuspecting fellowship. It's a good thing there are lots of them. You've got to worship. You've got to decide to worship. I want to share some helpful information with you not right now because prepare to gasp. Worship isn't just singing and dancing. I know. You know, when we talk about the worship experience, and we'll just use our gathering as an example, there's a lot going on, and there's a lot of opportunity for you to connect and worship in different ways. And you're about to see something that is like, it's just more natural for you to go there. And you're going to go, okay, that's where I'll go. I mean, for example, praise is certainly one aspect of worship. The Bible says that we are chosen people, etc. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So one dimension of worship is certainly what we do with the praise. Yeah, it's lifting up the name of Jesus, isn't it? It's praising Him for who He is. That's how we reflect His glory. He comes and His Word comes and He comes in manifest presence among us and we just put our reflective surfaces toward Him and we give Him praise. That's one aspect of worship. Unfortunately, there are lots of people who think that's all you do in worship. And in reality, maybe you have four more. One is declaration. When you declare the truth of God, when you declare it, you know, maybe you're not a hands-in-the-air kind of a singer, but there's stuff that goes up on there that says, you're a good, good father. You're a good, good father. And when you declare the truth of God, then something begins to happen in the kingdom realm when you just declare it. And so maybe you're not in the praising moment, but you can declare any truth of God. How many of you remember that song we used to do 20 years ago? We declare that the kingdom of God is here. That was, that was so hot. 
And we would declare it and God would come. Some of your job is to let these hand wavers, singers, dancers go. Let them go. And you declare the kingdom of God while we're in worship. Another aspect of worship is confession. I don't know about you, but when I get in worship and the Lord comes in His manifest presence, I become struck with how different we are. (laughs) How far from the perfection and holiness of God I really am. And I am moved to confess. So we might be in on fire worship and there might be people sitting down there with their heads bowed and confessing. Bless that. That's a, that's a way to worship God because you're acknowledging that He's true. You know the Greek word at the root for confession is to agree. It's to agree with God that we're sinners. And so when you agree, I'm a sinner in need of your salvation, in need of your forgiveness, you're worshiping Him. You're agreeing with Him. You're making Him Lord. There's also the matter of community. Community. It's really hard to worship with somebody you're mad at, isn't it? Don't you hate it when they come and sit near you? Screws everything up, doesn't it? I'm here to worship God, and that jerk's only two rows away. That messes everything. I'm already mad at you. I'm mad at you madder for sitting near me. Ruining my worship. What are you doing? What business do you have sitting in here anyway? I know about you. I know about you. <laughs> there's, there's community, you know, when, when I hug you guys, when I move around sometimes, you know, and startle some of you. Sorry about that. Some of you are like in the zone, and I come and give you, and go, <laughs> That's a fun thing to do. I want, to embrace, I want to embrace you. I want to have community with you. I want you to notice that, I'll talk more about this later in the series, but at the center of the word community is what? At the end of it, I guess. Unity. Jesus said, if you're worshiping me and you are broken with your brother and you haven't done all that you can do to repair it, you can't, you can't make people respond. But if you're worshiping me and you've done all that you can do to repair it, or you haven't done it, he says, I want you to stop. I want you to go. Be reconciled to your brother. Do all you can do. Then come back, he says. You know, in your worship time, some of you are so hospitable and so relational. You could move around. You could do what I do. You could go down these rows and see somebody you like and Give him a big old Jesus hug. That'd be worship. The Bible says in Psalm 133 how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity, he says. That makes God happy. And then there's surrender. The whole act of surrender is worship. Is bowing before the Lord and saying, I'm, I'm committed to your word. I'm surrendered to your word. Not 100% liking it but I'm surrendered to it. And as we surrender, as we commit ourselves, as we dedicate ourselves to being vessels of obedience and not excuses, that's an act of worship. Something happened? Is that my shadow? ADD. But if you're following Jesus, you'll you'll worship. And I just wanted to show you, and I'm sure we could add other things. 
But I just wanted to show you that, you know, if you're not getting all jiggy with Jesus in the music, there are other on-ramps for you into worship. Do you see yourself up there somewhere? Say, yes, I'll begin the whole thing again. Okay. And while worship makes sense to you, while you're listening to me talk about it, and you're saying you want to do it, you're saying, you're right, Tom, I'm going to do it, you're asking yourself another question. Why is it so hard for me to worship? What's the problem? What is standing in the way? And I want to tell you what's standing in the way. Your adversary, Satan, is standing in the way because he hates it when you worship. He hates it when you worship. Satan can't stand the sound of your voice in worship. It's nails on the chalkboard to Satan when you worship Jesus, which I think is all the more reason to do it. He hates it. And I want to show you why. You know, why does Satan make it so hard? Well, because of his origins. In Isaiah chapter 14, there's insight into the origins of Satan. And it'll tell you right there why he hates it when you worship. Now, to be fair, in context, this chapter was actually originally directed to the king of Babylon. But also, anytime the Lord has spoken stuff to us in his word, that there's a larger application of it. And this has become known, understood, as an explanation for the beginning of Satan. And it says, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of dawn. And it's talking about that Satan was once an angel in heaven. And he was a powerful angel. He wasn't one of these little angels. He was a powerful angel. And it says, you have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, here was his problem. You said in your heart, Satan, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Bad idea. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. Catch this. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. This was the heart of this rogue angel. I am going to take God's position. Read the next verse and see how well that worked out for him. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead to the depths of the pit. So if Satan wanted to be God, what did he want? He wanted our worship. He wanted us to worship him. He he wanted our reflective surfaces to be pointed toward him. And so why does he make it so hard for you to worship? Because he hates it that you're now worshiping him. And you know what? You can't reflect darkness. You can only absorb it. And Satan uses tools in your life to keep you from really worshiping. It's in your heart to worship God, I know it. But he uses a tool like pride. Oh, I could never do that. That just looks goofy, right? Huh? How how many of you love David in 2 Samuel 6 when he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant back and he's just shouting and dancing, tearing his clothes off? I love that song. I will dance, I will sing to be mad for my king. Nothing, Lord, is hindering this passion in my soul. And I'll be... We got four people clapping. What is wrong with you people? I am 60 years old and I am dancing for you. And I get nothing. 
I love that song. I'll become even more undignified than this. Some may say it's foolishness. Why won't you do that? Because you're too proud to do that. I was watching a football game recently and they were scanning the crowd. Just scanning the crowd. And there were two grown men. Big burly looking men. And they were so excited about what had just happened. They were embracing each other and they were going... They were so excited about what just happened. Now you bring those same two guys to church the next day and what do they do? I'm too cool for this. No, you're not. Humble yourself before the Lord, the Bible says, and he will lift you up. And the other reason, another tool that Satan uses to prevent our worship is doubt. We don't Believe. We don't really believe he's here. How could you not? How could you resist worship on some level, even the five dynamics? How could you resist all of that if you actually believed that Jesus was telling the truth when he said, where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I want to develop one more thought then we'll let you go and that is that authentic worship is in fact an effective offensive weapon against the plans and power of evil churches that are strong in the supernatural realm are churches that worship God churches that are weak in the supernatural realm are churches that have settled for empty religious ritualistic expressions that have no heart behind them anymore. And worship is a big part of the answer to the evil things that are happening in our world. There's a lot going down. And as I'm sure you know, this past Wednesday, two people, a man and a woman, stormed an office in Southern California and mercilessly slaughtered 14 people and injured 21 more. They had apparently pledged personal allegiance to ISIS and have since been hailed as heroes by that terrorist group. That's bad news, isn't it? You know, when I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that terrorists are only a plane ride away after each service, somebody came up and reminded me that that wasn't actually true. They're already here. So what's happening? Does the Word of God have anything to say to us about what's happening today? Well, I want to share a concept with you that I hope adds some insight to it. It's not a concept I ever really expected to talk about in detail. It's something that I worked on in my Ph.D. studies about eight or nine years ago. And it was a concept that God had really put on my heart to study. And um, I wasn't exactly sure why, though I knew that it had some powerful implications for the church. And uh, it's a concept called uh, decentralization. And what decentralization is is simply this, is that that a group, a movement, 
quite often needs a strong connection to a centralized leadership so that the group only functions as well as the leadership does. And they have to get permission and methodologies and stuff from the central leadership. That makes sense, right? What decentralization is, is it's a concept of organizational life and leadership in general where you don't really require a centralized leadership. You just need radical fringe elements, often called cells. They don't really need anybody at the headquarters. They don't even need a headquarters. What they need is an ideology, something that is so firmly entrenched in their hearts and minds. They don't need anybody to tell them how to do it. They just need permission to do it. So how this breaks down is pretty simple. It really starts, my thesis was, that it starts with values, that a group just really gets entrenched in a certain set of values, an ideology, and that it's not dependent on a specific leader as long as everybody out there, wherever they are, is committed to the ideology. And so killing Osama bin Laden and, or Saddam Hussein, while important from a military response, solved none of the problem, did it? Putting down al-Qaeda militarily solved none of the problem. It just gave rise to ISIS. Why? Because the ideology, because the values of we hate the West, in particular, we hate Christians. And so there is an evil ideology that is in play among groups of people throughout the world that don't require anybody in the home office. And for them to act... They only need one thing, was my thesis. Permission. They just need permission. They just need to come to their own sense. It's time. It's time to do that thing. And so ISIS encourages people to be what? A lone wolf. ISIS is a perfect example of a decentralized organization. They're encouraging people around the world to act as a lone wolf. We give you permission. And as soon as a local cell embraces a sense of permission, I said, they will act in dynamic and effective action. These are the only two things that are needed. Values and permission. What they don't need, and what makes this so powerfully dangerous, is a methodology. They don't need to be told how to do this. Nobody told those two to get two rifles and body armor and a bunch of pistols and go in and shoot those particular people. They didn't require. They didn't require a methodology. The values say, when it's time, you go in and raise all the hell you can and hurt as many people as you can. That's what makes this so dangerous, is they don't care how you do it, just do it. One of the things that cranks me off so much about this, and why I selected it as a thesis, was they have stolen this from us. This is the plan of Jesus Christ 
who spent three years infusing, infusing these ragtag disciples with what? Methodology? No values. He only ever gave them one method, one thing to do when they came and said, could you teach us to pray? Okay, I'll show you. He prayed the Lord's Prayer and get, that's about it. He never told them, showed them how to cast out demons. He never told them how to raise the dead. He never gave them a methodology. He just kept saying, you can do this. By the power of the Holy Spirit who will come to you, you can do this. And among his last words were what? All authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. Permission. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, go, do it. Do it. And what's happened in 20 centuries of church is we have tried to flip this around and make church life about control of a central authority. Did you get permission from the pastor for that? I don't care. Do it. And about methodology. Have you been trained to do that? You don't need permission or training. You just need to hear the Lord say go. And he's been pretty clear about that, hasn't he? What's happening, I believe, in our day is what is spoken of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and that is that the man of lawlessness is being released. 2 Thessalonians was a book written, to, written by the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians who were under the mistaken notion by some false teaching that, that the Lord had already come and they missed it. And so with that in mind, he says this. Oh, just be a minute. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to come, become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. Are you ready? Buckle up. Until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. See if this sounds familiar. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. Proclaiming, or setting, and so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back. What's holding what is holding this man of lawlessness back, yes? He said, you know, so that he may be revealed at the proper time, that there is coming a time that whatever is holding the man of lawlessness back will be lifted, and there will be a release. And you know what's holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. There's a power of lawlessness, but it's not the man of lawlessness. Already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. Someone, something is holding the man of lawlessness back until he's taken out of the way. There are some teachings that say that the church is holding the man of lawlessness back. I think that would be a bad plan. I think that would be a flaw in the plan of God if he were depending on us. I think a better teaching is that some Archangel Michael from the book of Daniel. 
who is assigned to hold this man of lawlessness back until the time comes for him to be released, which I believe is now. That's the bad news. Want some good news? It's the next verse. And then, the lawless, not, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. It says that the Lord Jesus will overthrow the lawless one by the breath of his mouth. Here's how hard it's going to be for Jesus to defeat Satan. I know that this is going to happen in a consummate way very soon. But I also know that there is an expression of this, there is a principal expression of this in the here and now, that as the church is the body of Christ, that our breath is His breath, our words are His words, and the church needs to open its mouth and declare the gospel of Jesus and announce victory over Satan. That it's time. And that by the breath of our mouth, by the infilling of the Holy Spirit, as we worship God, as we proclaim the gospel, we are actually conquering the lawless one and we are actually pushing terrorism back. That is our job. Stand up and come and let's do it together right now.